Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Scarpins Avenue. First of all, Layla, your energy is very mellow like this. So I feel like this is great because I've been on vocal rest uh, for quite some time and I can't really talk above this decibel. So... Mm. You're the perfect guest to have right now for a number of reasons. Uh, welcome to another episode of Small Doses. Today, we have author and incredibly patient Black woman, uh, Layla Saad, <laughs> who, whose work on anti-racism uh, has really been exponentially received by the success of her book, Me and White Supremacy, Combat Racism, Change the World, and Become a Good Ancestor. And uh, Layla is talking to us all the way from the mean streets of Qatar, uh, which I'm pretty sure a lot of our listeners, as cosmopolitan and worldly as they are, don't have any real context of what's popping in Qatar. But I just learned that Qatar has a lot of English speakers, and I really did not know that. But it's not like Dubai, right? Like, that's not the vibe. Uh, No, I I think it's more, um, Dubai feels really European to me. Yes. And it doesn't feel like that so much here. So it feels more, do I have a frame of reference? I mean. No. And the only other frame of reference I have is from the Middle East. So I don't think that would be well, helpful what, what for anyone. Uh, Abu Dhabi, which is also yes, in the. Which is yeah. in the UAE. Yes. Okay. Yeah. See that? I know. Yeah. I've, I've been there. Okay, good. Yeah. It's more that kind of a feeling. And that yeah. makes sense because I did not like Dubai. Because (laughs) I was like, where? I feel like I'm in a music video. Like, I feel like I'm, you know, like, there. and the song, I woke up in a new Bugatti, had just came out. And they had giant ads where you could rent apartments that have a Bugatti in the apartment. And I was like, y'all are taking this way too literal. Like, this is not. But then when I was in Abu Dhabi, I was like, oh, like. It's a lot more chill there. And it's a lot. Yeah. There's culture. It's very chill here. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. It doesn't feel like just opulence and materialism. Yeah. Although there's a lot of that as well because it is the Middle East. (laughs) But yeah. (laughs) All right. There's that. Um, So, you know, I was talking to Layla before we came on and we, you know, this episode is Side Effects of White Supremacy. And I had a video go viral, Layla, where I talked about, like, don't ask me for a reading list, like about... Blackness, because I had an agent who had called me and was like, I'm canceling our meetings tomorrow in observation of Black Tuesday. And I was like, what the hell is that? And she was like, well, we have been asked to give space for our Black you know, clients and our colleagues to take a day to just center. And, you know, for us, non-Black people, for us to educate ourselves on that day and, you know, just take a day to center. And I was like, so what's your plan? 
And she was like, well, I was calling um, to cancel our meetings tomorrow and to also ask if um, you, if there's anything I could help you with or if there's any books that you suggest I should read. And, <laughs> and I was really bothered by that. Mm-hmm. I was really bothered by that because it felt like such a very tangible, just expression of privilege in that, yeah. you know, she just felt like on my, like, even in her trying to observe, it was still like, can you please be in service to me? Right. 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 And it's, it's kind of like, can you, can you recommend me the best, best, best book? Like what is the book that I'm supposed to be reading? Right. Instead of Which understanding many would say is your book, by the way. <laughs> right. But there's so many, there's so many books and each book, um, comes at this work from a different perspective, both from like the personality and outlook of the author, but also at what point or what layer of white supremacy that they are tackling, right? My work is very much about the personal work. It's not about institutional work. It's not about the systemic. It's a, it doesn't give a, although there are historical contexts and references, it's not about understanding the depth of the history of white supremacy, but it's about looking within and really looking at your own daily life as a person who has white privilege. But what I found in those, especially in those weeks and months after George Floyd was murdered, was that, first of all, we were seeing book lists everywhere. Um, but, But it was like, what are the books that I'm supposed to be reading? And as a writer and somebody who just loves reading, I could spend my entire life and I still wouldn't finish all of the books that have been written by Black people, by Indigenous people, by people of color, about white supremacy, about colonialism, about the impact of racism. Like there isn't enough time in my lifetime to finish all of the books. And I still, um, I still wouldn't, I still wouldn't be able to tackle all the aspects of it. And so I talk about, and so many anti-racism educators talk about this, about this being lifelong work, about it being multi-generational work, because this has been a generational legacy and modern world that we live in of racism, of violence and oppression. And it won't be solved on one day on Blackout Tuesday or even in our lifetimes. And, and so it's, it's really about thinking about in this time that I have here on earth, I'm here on earth for a number of years, what is my contribution to the human race so that Black people and people of color get to live in the full dignity of their humanity? But when I look at it as something that Amanda has to teach me or Layla has to teach me or I have to be given the perfect thing, I'm not, as a person who has white privilege, fully taking responsibility for my part in this violent story. When you talk to audiences, um, because like I said, when I came on, like you have a very, you have the perfect demeanor for this work. I do not. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what though, Amanda, I will tell you, um, I am a pretty chill person, but also when I started this work, I was just pissed off every single day. What made you start so angry? Like what made it go from like, this is something I'm aware of that's pissing me off to like, this is work I'm doing. 
Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I'm black. So, you know, I know of the experience of being black in, in predominantly white spaces and yeah. societies. I grew up in the UK um, and I went to predominantly white schools and Catholic schools as well. And I'm Muslim. Ooh, fun. Well. So I was super different. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> but, but Wait, cho- tell me but this, cho- tell me this. When they said the Lord's Prayer, would you be in your head like, Bismillah So I was telling my daughter today, because my kids don't have a contact. They grew up here. They were born and grew up here. They have no contact context of going to a Christian school. And I said to her this morning, because we were talking about COVID and, you know, are you having assemblies and stuff? And I said, you know, we used to have assemblies every week in my school when we used to go to Roman Catholic schools. And we would, we would sing hymns. And she's like, wow, I'm glad I don't have to do that. And I'm like, I actually really enjoyed it because I liked singing. (laughs) She's like, I know, but the part about, you know, the difference in religion part, that's the part that I wouldn't want to do, you know? Um, but, but I, and, and my mom talked to me from a young age about race because she wanted me to understand, look, this world isn't made for you. You know, you, you're going to have you, you're a girl, you're Muslim, you're black. Yep. This world isn't made for you. You're going to have to work three times as hard to overcome these three things. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and so, you know, I was aware of it, but I, as children, we make sense of the world in our own ways. And I always put me being black, not as something bad, but as I understood it, I wouldn't be treated like I was white. And so I've always made myself smaller and I always felt like I didn't deserve to belong in certain spaces. And yeah. I always felt, I always felt like I was invisible a lot of the times, actually, yeah. even though I worked super hard, I was always top of my class, you know, because I had that, you have to work hard, but I always felt invisible, not here. Um, but I didn't really talk about racism or write about racism or anything like that. Um, I was just trying not to rock the boat, I guess, at some level. Um, but when the, funnily enough, even though I don't live in the US, when the 2016 elections um, were coming up, a lot of my clients, I was working as a life coach at the time, a lot of my clients were white women who lived in the US and a lot of my peers were, um, were American as well. So that conversation around that time was happening everywhere and in spaces where it wasn't happening before in the personal development world and the life coaching world, the spiritual world. Um, for the first time ever, people were talking about politics, uh, quote, quote, right. And, um, and so I began to listen to different conversation of conversation, conversations around race and really become aware of the ways that I was in it, but didn't realize I was in it. You know, I, I'd never, I'd never really questioned why all my clients were, why all of the experts in the personal growth work uh, and sort of best-selling authors and, you know, uh, speakers at conferences, why were they all white? Even though I, I knew that people who were black did that kind of work. Um, and, and so that began the journey for me, but where I really began speaking about it publicly was after Charlottesville and the Unite the Right rally. And it was like a culmination of all of these emotions and things that I was observing. And I remember just seeing those men's faces and just something like just a switch just flicking off inside of me, like no more, like I have to say something. And so I wrote down I word vomited <laughs> this essay um, in, in a day or so um, and published it. And it was called, I Need to Talk to Spiritual White Women About White Supremacy. 
and it went very viral very quickly. And it just suddenly catapulted me into this world of anti-racism education and having conversations about anti-racism every single day with white people. And it was exhausting. I was going to say, like, aren't you fucking t- like, I'm t- I was burnt. I was burnt out within weeks. I was uh, within months. Within so that essay That's came impressive. out months. Yeah, that. Yeah, that that letter came out in August. By December, I was like, I don't even know who I am anymore. Well, you're also talking to Americans, which is a different thing. Well, I was talking to everybody, but it was interesting that the conversation, that more people in the U.S. were willing to have that conversation in a a direct way. That was my next question. Yeah. So my book is published in the US and in the UK and it's, you know, sold in um, Canada and New Zealand and Australia and Ireland. Right. And and it's really interesting when white people in countries that are not the US kind of point to the US as the issue with racism. And I'm like, you're literally ignoring, first of all, if you're from the UK, the, (laughs) you started this shit. This is like, you literally, you made this up. (laughs) Right. But also like in countries like you know, France or Spain or other places. And I'm like, you also Spain. have your own history with colonial, right? Listen, so Spain looked at <laughs> Spain looked at the UK and was like, you know what? Uh, hold can, my, oh my, God. <laughs> hold my purse. We can do this better, right? Like, right. Yeah. So it's everywhere, and it shows up differently in different ways, and. What I have found really interesting is connecting with other Black people, you know, of the African diaspora in those countries, in those other countries that try to deny that white supremacy is present there or that it's a huge problem there. When Black and brown people in those countries are every day dealing with the daily microaggressions and also dealing with, you know, the institutional ways that they are discriminated against and um, and marginalized. And so it's like you're like in America, you're living in two different worlds. It seems that white people are living in their own world and black and brown people are living in their own world. Um, Just because in the U S the conversation is had in a more direct way, doesn't mean it's a bigger problem there than in other places. It just shows up differently. Well, speaking of showing up differently, like I do feel there's a certain level of just compassion, right? That you're, that you're, possessing that you are expelling in centering like white women and their personal journeys as an <laughs> Why are you I laughing? don't know Amanda so, <laughs> I'm gonna uh, well so because I don't I have don't, it right so so this is where I come this is where I come to it with that compassion and grace or whatever you want to call it yeah. is actually for me first because I was going to ask that me and white supremacy, like the me is you, like the the me, the me is, is, them, is them, the but me is them. But in this question, yes. I'm like, it's me. So so it wasn't working for me to be that angry and pissed off and easily triggered and in trauma and grief all the time. It wasn't working for me. I was going to end my life really early, just not, um, uh, not intentionally, but just from the, the, the erosion of my physical body from 
being in that space of like high energy, high anger, high emotion all the time. And I had to take several steps back and actually just stop. Um, and I had um, my, for- my uh, former mentor um, talk to me about this concept of putting the, the armor down. Right. Cause I was like, every time there's a conversation online and white women have done something and people tag me in. And, you know, I feel like I have to say something now because people see me as this public figure. And she said to me, you know, when there's a battle, you know, who do they call? Do they call the people who are already holding the weaponry and got the armor on or do they call everyone else? I said, of course, they call the people who have the armor on. And she said, it's time to take the armor off. You don't have to be that person. You know, you don't have to carry that. And I think that's something that at least I have learned from myself is that I can talk about these issues and do this work and be, and not sugarcoat it, right? Not like skip over it and make it all flowery and nice. Like talk about the true violence of it and not sacrifice myself in the process um, through burning myself out through anger and trauma and grief. Wow. Like when I, you say put the armor down, like what does that actually look like in practicum? Because honestly, this conversation, side effects of white privilege, is less about like identifying what white privilege is. We know what white privilege is. People who are listening right now know what white privilege is. Even the Hannahs. Hannahs are white women that I... Uh, no, that's are, new for me. Who's a Hannah? <laughs> Hannahs are my term for women who happen to be white. Because okay. <laughs> my feeling is that one of the ways that white the racism gets destructed is that people who are identified as white by a supremacist counterculture, by a supremacist culture have to create a counterculture to that, that Mm. distances themselves from that while, Mm. while understanding that they, in the distancing, they have to demolish it. Right. And, and And they can't become us. They have to become their own. They have to become their own. Right. Yes. Right. And I and, and creating what that is. And it's not even as, and to me, it's not even as abstract as like coming up with a new name. It's like, you can be, you can be Irish, like, you know, but in, in America, particularly nationality and race, when it comes to whiteness are completely connected versus In other places, it's not, you know, I would even, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would even stretch to say that in England, there's a little bit more space between the two. Yeah, yeah, I I think so compared to the U.S. And I think that has to do with the U.S.'s history around whiteness um, and and sort of settler colonialism. And actually, I'm writing um, the Young Readers edition of Mean White Supremacy at the moment. And one of the things that I've included in the intro is the difference between race, ethnicity, and nationality. Thank you, please. Um, Thank you. Because most adults don't understand it, right? You're doing the Lord's work. Inshallah. (laughs) You're doing Allah's work. Yes. Thank you. Because because, just for the record... Can you just sum it up real quick? Yeah. So race is, you know, based on, you know, what we physically see, right? So skin color, facial features, um, hair type, things like that. Ethnicity is about um, the sort of cultural bonds, um, the cultural ethnic history of those people. So we can be black as a race, but I can be black and be East African and, um, and, and another person can be black and be, uh, so my parents are from, uh, Kenya and, uh, and Zanzibar. Um, 
another person who's also black and African uh, can be, you know, Nigerian or Ghanaian or, you know, that's the difference in, in, in ethnicities. And then nationality is where you're, where you're a citizen, right? Where are you a citizen, where are you legally seen as a citizen and where you have legal rights as well. But they can be interconnected as well because your cultural, your culture and your cultural values can be really influenced by your nationality, even though it's just your passport or where you happen to be born, but you're, you've grown up and you've lived in that culture. So there's an American culture that's very different to a British culture, to a French culture. Um, but you can be French and be, you know, Senegalese. white. Oh, okay. Yes, right. You can be white or you can be French and be Senegalese, right? And, and the reason why you're French is because, why you're French is because the French colonized Senegal. Um, and so you're not having the same experience of being French. You're having two different experiences of what it means to be French. Yes. Yes. So I just wanted to, because I think a lot of us end up in these conversations and we don't have the language to be able to like correct. So even being able to just sum that up. Thank you for that. What I was saying about these, the, the, the Hannah's is that, you know, even in, I don't even remember what I was saying. What was I, I think you were talking, you were talking about sort of the, com- the compassion and sort of how, you know, how I do the work. And you were saying that you don't have that patience. Um. <laughs> well, you know what it is? It's that there's, damn, I was going to say something good too. And I can't remember what it was, but, <laughs> um, but I call, I call, I call Hannah's, you know, there are women, like there's white people and people who happen to be white. And I call the people who happen to be white Hannah's. And I'm basically just like, I can't fight your fight mm-hmm. for you, you know? And it feels like oftentimes they want the, they want you to be the ally, not the Reverse. And to understand how hard it is for them to go against white solidarity and how hard mm-hmm. it is for them to look inside of themselves and pull out, you know, uh, what they have been conditioned into and their unconscious biases and to understand, you know, how, how, how hard it is for them that they may be losing relationships or losing jobs or, you know, losing privilege in some ways. And, um, <clears throat> You know, so many people are eager to get this so-called title of ally, which, you know, isn't something that you get. It's not a thing. It's a practice. Um, They're so eager to be seen as good and to be given that pat on the back. And I just, I don't give that pat on the back because I think if that's what you're looking for, then you've got, you've so got it wrong what we're doing here. Um, This is not about black women congratulating white women and white people for seeing us as human beings. Thanks guys. (laughs) Thank you so much. You know, gold star for you. Um, We, uh, the way I see it is we all have our anti-racism work that we're doing. My anti-racism work that I'm doing within myself is treating myself in the ways that I want the world to treat me. So yes, I, so what are some right. of those ways? 
So I may educate, right? I may write and do these programs and things like that. But actually, what I want is to live in the fullness of my humanity, which is not to make myself small from fear of being seen or make myself big so that you'll see me. Um, It's not denying myself rest or denying myself kindness or compassion, gentleness, softness, rest, right? Um, You were saying at the beginning that you've been on vocal rest. I've been on sabbatical since July, I think, um, and just came off it this week, but actually I'm still really on it because I just don't have the energy. We've been through a lot this year. And you know what's you know, funny? We, we, we keep talking about it as if it's encapsulated in this year. We're like, right, boy, right. We're like 2020 as if on like on New Year's, it's going to be like, Okay. <laughs> done. What a year. <laughs> you know? Onwards. Right. Exactly. So it's, I, it's, there, there's, it's a lot that we're carrying. There's energy in even having to carry the weight of knowing that like, we don't know what's, yeah where, where things are going. I mean, right. So I'm glad to hear that you're practicing self-care because I don't think I'm the best at it all the time. Like it's something I've had to really work on. And like I was low last week and Mm. I was talking to a friend while I was texting because I couldn't talk. And um, she sent me a podcast. And in the podcast, the host is called Ghost of a Podcast. Uh, Mm. The host's name is Jessica and she is a Hannah. Let me tell you. She's a Hannah for real. Um, But she was talking about abandonment and she was talking about the the horoscope for the week and how like your abandonment issues would be showing up. And she was like, but the key is don't abandon yourself. And I was like, and I was here on this couch. That part. Yes. I like, I raised up like a vampire, like what? She was like, don't abandon yourself. She was like, you have to belong to yourself. And I was just. So I went outside and hit my punching bag and I came in like, yeah, let's get it. Let's get it. it." You know, I I love that so much. I love that. I I was going to say like one of the things that I, that I have learned on this journey is to not betray myself. Mm. Um, So along those same lines, but also, and this, this is where like, this is where for me, self-care became non-optional. Um, was when I realized as, as I'm doing, as I'm asking people to engage with this work, I'm also engaging in my own relationship with white supremacy, seeing yes. the ways in which I have internalized the idea that I am the very thing that I'm fighting against. And one of the most sobering moments for me was realizing the ways in which I had been an agent of white supremacy against my own self. Elaborate, please. So in and this is and this is where I think it's it's really important for people who are holding space for other people to do work is to have somebody who's holding space for you. Yeah. Um in in the process of sort of um mentoring and therapy and various different modalities, it it's seeing the ways in which I was believing I had to be X, Y, Z for other people. Why am I engaging in that thing? Why, am, why do I think it's my job to, say, to, to, get, to save white people, right? Why was I thinking that it was my job to save black people, right? Why am I putting myself in this savior space? And it was, oh, be- believing that I'm not owed that, that I have to work for it. 
that my dignity is something that I had to prove in many different ways. And, you know, things like imposter syndrome, that was a huge one for me. Imposter syndrome, I said at the beginning when I was young, I I always felt like I was invisible. I felt like people didn't really see me. Um, And yet I was always in these leadership positions, always. I've always been in leadership positions. And yet I felt invisible. Um, I felt like I didn't really earn it when I got it, especially if it came easy, I would question it. And I just thought it was a Layla thing. I thought it was a me thing. Oh, you just don't believe in yourself. You just don't trust yourself. And in really studying the impacts of what white supremacy does to like psychologically to us, it was really like coming face to face and saying, oh, you don't, you don't think you're worthy. Why do you not think you're worthy? It's not a you thing. This is a message that you have internalized because every single day from the moment you entered into this world, you have been receiving messages from left, right, and center that Black people are nothing, that Black people are not worth anything, Um, and that when we are given anything, that it's either an exception or it's, it's luck somehow or you know, you, or you, you killed yourself to get there and you have to keep going at that same speed. You have to keep working yourself into the same, into the ground to maintain that same um, level. And so in, in, in doing my own personal work, I came to see that, oh, the personal growth work that I've been, I've been engaged with personal growth work since university. Cause I really struggled with depression and anxiety a lot and started reading a lot of authors who happened to be white, didn't realize it until afterwards. <laughs> and I, and now, right now looking back, I'm like, oh, the, like what they were teaching had, it was like, I had to see myself as raceless, that whatever issues I had within myself had nothing to do with being black. It was just a personal thing. I'm just a, I'm just, I'm just a person as white people see themselves. I'm just a person. No, I'm, I'm a black person person. Um, my, my parents are, um, from countries that were previously colonized. I'm a first generation, um, uh, daughter of immigrants. Um, you know, all of these things have shaped they who continue. I am and how I see myself. Right. Um, growing up, you know, I never saw representations of myself, uh, you know, all kinds of things that now I'm like, that had an impact on how I see myself. My and mom. and and all the white people in the world can be doing the work and finally say we see you okay we honor you we but we're going to yeah. treat you with dignity but what if i don't see myself I don't yeah right the i i don't know if i irony is not the word but the um the pervasiveness of that amongst black people of all ethnicities and nationalities is in, it's it's really it's it's a tragedy it's a tragedy because mm. and then i think what we do as black folks from different places from different backgrounds then we start to look and say well my oppression is greater than your oppression so i'm blacker which i which i believe is also us internalizing white privilege because now we're juxtaposing our own ethnicity on the, we're juxtaposing it with the oppression of, 
of a system that doesn't want to see us exist right. beyond that oppression. Like to yeah, white supremacy only exists as long as there is no black power. That's right. That's right. And we're not, you know, we're all different and we're all, we're not all going to be on the same page, right? No. There's no singular black voice or no. um, voice of people of color. Um, but, you know, it, as I've been doing this research for the young readers uh, a version of my book, I've really been studying the impacts of European colonialism around the world. And it has been really <laughs> heartbreaking. Um, and taking me into a place of um, just very, it's very triggering. I'll yes. say that. But when you think about what white supremacy has done throughout the generations on the physical bodies of, of black and brown people, and then the psyches um, of us as well, and, and how we see ourselves and how we see each other, like I see it and I have so much it's painful when we have that lateral violence between it ourselves, but I also am like, oh, like I understand because we're in so much pain. You know, I was speaking to my husband about, you know, the, the project of, of how Europe colonized Africa and how they decided in a, in a conference in, Ber in Berlin um, how they were going to slice up the continent like pizza and say, I've got this part and I've got that part. And, and, and you had different tribes um, who lived together, right? Sliced apart, and then and then the Europeans would favor one tribe over the other. Hutus and the Tutsis, you know? right? So they give privileges to one tribe. They treat one tribe like human beings, and they they treat the other tribe not. And then when they left, what did they leave behind? The carnage that they left behind, um, and and they take no responsibility for it. So when we see that, you know. And the ways that it plays out now, you know, it, it's it's a continuation of white supremacy in action. But now, it, but now we are the white people are not there. Now we are doing it to We're one another. Her. We're yes. doing it to one another. But when I say that, I don't say it to say we're guilty, right? No, I say no. we, are, right? We're carrying deep trauma. We're carrying deep pain, and we don't have oftentimes the resources and the space um, to be able to do the healing work that needs to be done. Um, and we continue to live in a white supremacist world. So it's really hard, you know, and, and we have to have such deep compassion for ourselves, first of all, and such deep compassion for one another. Um, it's not to say that we don't take responsibility for our actions, but we're not just acting this way out of nowhere. And it's, it's really, it's really hard. And it, um, like white privilege like, is tiring, girl. Like it's just <laughs> fucking tiring. It's tiring on such a multitude of levels, yeah. you know, like externally, internally, it's very visceral. It's very invasive. And now that we have this thing, mm -hmm. you know, our phones, it, uh -huh. it is, like I start and end my day with it if I'm not careful. Yeah. Like in, in very violent ways, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, there's microaggressions, but then there's like aggression, aggressions. Yeah. And, you know, if I'm not careful, like I'm, I'm starting my day with police violence. 
I'm ending my day with a Karen. Like there's a, there's an Instagram page called Karen's Gone Wild. Mm-hmm. And I entertained it for like a good few days. And then I was like, this is triggering me. It's awful. Yeah. It's yeah. triggering me. And it's, and it's, it's the constant feeling of, and this is why, you know, I wanted to give you space to talk about how, the, how you manage with this work, because I think knowing, <laughs> knowing something as fact yeah, and having to continuously convince yeah. is the work of insanity. Like that, <laughs> like yeah. that, that's why you can't, for those of you listening, that's why you can't date folks that don't have the same values as you. No, you cannot. Right. Right. Ultimately. Or, or be in friendship. Right. Because that's, it, it starts to trip, like trip you out. And yeah. we as black folks who have a consciousness, I mean, that's why James Baldwin says like, if you're a, a I'm paraphrasing, if you're a conscious black mm-hmm. person, you exist in a place in a state of rage because you're yeah. always like, here, ah, right. Like, how do you not hear but, what and, I'm saying? But that's, and that's it. Like I, I've learned that I have to have um, boundaries uh, externally and internally. Okay. So external boundaries are things like going on sabbatical, right? Um, and actually, when I came back I, online, I was like, no, I need to unfollow. <laughs> I need to actually unfollow everybody um, because I can't see. I can't just have in the palm of my hand the ability to be triggered, right? To be to to suddenly see another video or another um, act of uh, of aggression against a black person like that. That shouldn't just be in the palm of my hands when I've got to be a human being and I've got to be a mom and a wife and I've got to write a book and do all these other things. Like I can't be pulled out of myself that easily. Um, so I've actually unfollowed everybody and it's, it's been such a relief. <laughs> it's given me such peace of mind. Um, but there. even before unfollowing everybody, you know, one of the things that I, I said, I put the armor down is I don't jump into online things that I see going on. I, I don't. Working on it, Layla. <laughs> this morning, this morning I typed a whole thing and I was like, this is not your fight. Like this, this, this conversation is not your fight. Like you, you've seen the issue, you know what your response to it is, you know, the work you're doing, but this is not. You don't need to get it. And I do that even if that thing is on my page. Yeah. So if if somebody's like, right. I I close my comments. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Right. So there's certain things that I'm like, this is, this is, these are ways that I'm having a boundary. I don't do this or I don't do that. Or if I do something, it has to be in this way. I have to have these certain things. And people may say, I know like as, um, as somebody who does interviews and does speaking engagements, like there's certain things that I have to have in place. And if the person hosting me can't have those things present, especially if, you know, they're white, if they can't have those things present or guarantee them, then I'm not doing it. Right. Uh, and so I don't say yes to everything. I'm actually very discerning about what I will say yes to. If I say yes, there has to be, and I'm, I'm always like, I'm not like, this is not like interviewing a white person. You know, there are certain things that you have to understand that in order for me to f- feel safe and show up the way that I need to show up, this is what I need. I need you to have, if you're white, I need you to have actually done me in white supremacy, not just read it. I need you to have actually gone through the journaling process. 
How many right? people do it? Can you tell when if they we're have having? It? If I'm fine with them having just read it, if it's a short interview, but if it's a long form interview, I will not do it until they have done it. Have you ever caught somebody lying? Um, I recently had an incident, which I haven't yet spoken about, right? So this is one of those things where it's like, do I want to engage myself in, um, uh, you know, calling somebody out and having it be triggering to me, um, where basically um, a, a very high profile company and CEO made the commitment to do the work. And then when we got on the preparatory call before the event, which is something that I always have in place as well, and I questioned, did you do it? No, they hadn't done it. And, um, and the, that was just one thing of that call that was just, it was, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was just. Do you have a clause in the contract that says like, I still get my money even if they haven't done the work? So that, so that event actually wasn't even a paid event, but for my paid events, absolutely. I just won't do that's it. A boundary. it. Like it has to be there. That's a boundary. So, so those are things like external boundaries, but the internal boundary is stopping yourself from going into something when you know it's not going to be good for you. So well, that's just but like right. I was saying, if I see a conversation happening online, I don't jump into it. You know, if I feel like, um, that feeling of, it will feel better to me to like, blah, like word vomit all of this at them and let them know how I feel. Like in the moment, it might feel good, but from experience, I know afterwards, I don't feel good, right? So it doesn't mean that I don't deal with the situation. I'll deal with the situation, but I'll deal with it from being centered within myself and not reacting from the place of being racially gaslit. Yeah. Right. Because we, yeah. we are constantly being racially gaslit and right. we start to buy into this idea that we're supposed to be in this constant state of nonstop rage all the time, outrage, rage, anger all the time, oh, which yeah. we're justified in feeling. We are justified in feeling those things. But I just, it, those, those hormones running through my, <laughs> running through my body all day, that state of being in my mind is not good for me. And I talk about that. I talk about how like, you know, you, you can, there's, there's even like an imposter syndrome that happens or, or is it, or is it, um, survivor's remorse where, you know, you kind of feel like you're betraying. Yeah. You know, like you're betraying the movement or you're betraying, you know, your ancestors if you're not constantly engaged in the dismantling um, or in, or not even in just the dismantling, but in the challenging, right? Yeah. Of all yeah. of this. And I feel which like- is Which is for me, it's like, that's one, that's one side of it. The challenging is one side of it. But anti-racism work is also about us living joyfully, living free. And that- that that is something I've I say mm. that I'm like actively working to practice. Yeah, like I set up my turntables in my house again, like painting, like just because I genuinely think Layla, like a lot of us say that, and then we don't even know the actual like what does that joy look like? And yeah. then when you talked about the internalizing of white supremacy. It's like we forget that we can define that joy, like, and giving ourselves agency to do that and not letting it be um, formed and cultivated against 
this oppression that we have to fight. Like, yeah. I didn't realize that when I got my trampoline, so many people felt like empowered by me jumping on this damn trampoline. And, right. And I, I got it because I was home for three months at my mother's house and I was regressing back to childhood. I mean, that's where right. I got the trampoline. <laughs> and, and, but then it actually did become this like self-care space of like feeling weightless and just bouncing just felt so other than me sitting in front of the yeah. TV watching CNN for hours, you know, and and seeing cities burn and seeing, you know, America, some might say descend, I would say ascend into, mm -hmm. into madness because mm -hmm. there wasn't, the, the madness is a righteous rage. So, mm -hmm. um, but, but, but I think it's such, go ahead. No, I just, I just, so many people were like watching you jump on this trampoline is like self-care for right. me. And I was like, I guess it's also self-care for me too. Right. Well, I mean, hopefully that's why you got it, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I didn't consciously get it for that reason, but it, but it did serve that purpose. And now it's like, okay, like give yourself license to define what joy yeah. and self-care is for you and not feeling like you have to look at how you're fighting white privilege to determine how you're engaging in joy. So I think about, you know, I talk about in my work a lot, this idea of being a good ancestor. And I think about what my parents wanted for me and my siblings, what my ancestors want from for us and what I want for my children. You know, I don't just want them to survive. I want them to thrive and thrive in all kinds of ways, right? And joy is one of them. And, and you know, in my journey of understanding the ways in which I was a, uh, an agent of white supremacy to myself was when I came to the realization that I was actually afraid of joy. I was really, really afraid of being really, really joyful. Joy felt really dangerous to me. Hmm. Uh, and I remember explaining it to somebody and saying like, it feels like, you know, that feeling when you decide to have a really cold, if, if you don't like cold showers, I like really hot showers, but sometimes you decide to have a really cold shower, right? Yeah. You turn on the cold water and then you're scared to jump in and you kind of feel like you can't breathe, right? As you get it, that's what feeling joy felt like to me. It didn't feel good. And I think it was because somewhere in my brain, joy was equated with freedom and freedom was equated with something that I wasn't supposed to have. Okay. Like feeling completely free, feeling right. Like I grew up like so many black kids with a mom who was constantly, and I see that I, I understand where it comes from. It's, it's a survival of, it's a survival tactic to survive within white supremacy, but it was always like, don't be too loud. You know, don't be too like wild, you know, um, don't, don't let yourself, you know, feel too free. Yeah. Right. And so I, equated freedom and joy with something that was bad and something that was dangerous. So I grew up into an adult who knew how to really work hard, right? And really knew how to achieve, but didn't know how to relax. Didn't know how to do something just for the joy of yeah. doing it. Like yeah. there had to be some utilitarian reason why I would do something. Right? <laughs> Layla, when I tell you, you are speaking to my journey. Like, right. 
So, so, so I have been giving myself more and more opportunities to do things for the joy of it. Like one of the things that I've taken up this year with my kids, actually, we do it together is we started um, guitar lessons. You know, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to become the next whatever, right? I just want to do something just for the joy of doing something. Um, and music in our house was something we didn't do. That was a white people thing. We didn't do music in our house. Um, but now, but, and it's really funny because my mom is just like, and she's a huge supporter of my work, but she's just like, I can't believe you're just going to guitar lessons. You know, for her, it's like really hard to understand, like doing something just is for that the joy also of Muslim doing too? it. No, it's a, it's not a Muslim thing. So my dad is a huge music lover. We grew up with music. She, she my mom doesn't like music, but my dad does. Wait, what do you mean? I've never heard of that before. <laughs> she doesn't like music. My mom doesn't like music. Like if you pick her up from somewhere and music is on, you got to switch it off. She doesn't like the sound of music. Whereas my dad but loves there's music. Something there. There's yeah. something in her. there. Well, is. yeah. So right, because, oh, absolutely. Because music. Music is like so there it's objectively joyous. Right. So so I carry from her things that I'm sure that she adopted okay. as survival, yes. you know, tactics and mechanisms from her own upbringing. Um But our immigrant mothers don't have conversations. No. <laughs> well, now she does. <laughs> My I think mother, now I'm an adult and I understand her better and she understands me better. <laughs> my mother said to me like recently, like, well, you know, you never know your parents. I'm like, you know, you're my parent, right? Like what, <laughs> like, what don't I know? Like my mother, yeah. like, like randomly, like three months ago was like, I remember when I used to do bicycle competitions. What are what? you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> when? When was this? When? And it was said so casually. And she was like, you, mm. you just don't, you don't know everything about me. I'm like, I, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> all right. But that's like a very, like, I would love, like, there's a story behind that for your mother. There is a story. Oh, absolutely. And my mom grew up with her own um, like traumas called. because she lived, um, she grew up in Zanzibar and uh, in, in Pemba, which is also one of the islands off of uh, Tanzania. And when she was young, there was an, uh, an uprising there that led to, you know, a massacre. Like she has real trauma around um, people who were wearing police uniforms because the people who took over stormed the police building, stole weapons from there and dressed in police uniform. And they had to hide in their houses for, for months at a time. They couldn't go out. Right. So there's, there's a lot of trauma that she carries that gets passed down to me, you know, and passed down, um, to her descendants. And so the healing, like that healing work of reclaiming joy, reclaiming rest, reclaiming just, you know, happiness and doing things for the sake of doing it, that is resistance work as well. And so this idea that, like, I'm only really in it if I'm angry and challenging and fighting and outraged, that's only part of the story. Yes, we need to call things out. Yes, we need to, we need to like, have that um, active resistance, but also living out in the way that we want to be able to live in the future, yes, yes. like living it into living yes. it in the present now as yes. if it's true, not because like, because it's already true. Like internally we are already worthy internally. We are free. 
So we have to live it as if it's a reality now instead of waiting for white people to give it to us. And that right there is how you end a podcast on white <laughs> supremacy and white privilege. I I commend you, Layla. Um, don't come to America. <laughs> Don't, I don't. came for my book talk. <laughs> I came earlier this year and at the end of last year, I think it's going to be a while before I come back again. Don't come over here. Mm. Um, I, I really, I don't know where our country, I don't know where our country is going to go and not because of white people, but because of my people. And when you talk about the internalizing of, of white privilege and white supremacy, I see it within us in so many deleterious ways. And mm. I, I see how we have, you know, the divide and conquer method has been effective beyond ways I think a lot of us even can con- even aware. Yeah, yeah. Like we can't even, it's true. you know, like there'll be times where I'm like, wait, what? Like, I didn't even consider that as a, a permutation of this. And here we are. So, right. so it's, um, but when you say like, you know, that this is the work you're doing and that you've had to create boundaries, that is so powerful and necessary for all of us, no matter where we live, because I really believe that as a black person, you are born with PTSD. Mm. Like in our current state of the world. Mm. And that gets exacerbated or managed to varying degrees. But I don't feel it ever gets quelled. Mm. Yeah. You know, like you can run. Well, you're constantly being re-traumatized <laughs> yeah. even as you're trying to heal. Um, so I, I, I hear what you're saying. So, So, you know the 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 annoying reality is that i agree with you white people got to do the personal work and it's it seems like we again still have to like wait on them like for things to like truly change which is a very like sobering <laughs> yeah um understanding but in that Mm. That is why what you're talking about in terms of what we do in our own space, what we do internally, like, is so important because we have control over that in a different way than we do in the grand scheme of this world and consciousness, et cetera. So thank you so much for for like our conversation today, for the conversations you're having that I would never have. (laughs) Um, you know, and for what it's worth creating spaces though, where people start to understand like how they have to behave to have those conversations, how they have to show up so that it makes it easier for more people to enter like myself to enter those Mm -hmm. conversations and not feel like I'm going to be triggered. So I can't talk to you, you know, like, because communication is the way. But so many, so many folks aren't trying to have a conversation. They're trying to have a discussion about their decision. (laughs) Right. Right. And, and we just have to remember like, you know, the, the world is constantly at war with us, like with us 
in all kinds of ways. We can't be at war within ourselves. We can't be at war against ourselves. We, we have to end that war within ourselves first. Um, so that we can show up in ways that, you know, I, I, you can't extend love and compassion and grace to others that you don't have fully for yourself that you say it one, that more, you're time. Unwilling. Say it one more time say it you one more can't time. extend love grace and compassion to others that you haven't been able to give to yourself and my motto is me first um i come first and to be a black muslim woman and say that in this world unfortunately is uh something that is out of the ordinary um but i think for me, in order to do the work that I do and just to live, even if I wasn't an anti-racism educator, to live as a black woman in the world, right? I, I have to put myself first because everybody else puts me last. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so that's, that's the point that I come at this to, um, but it's, it's to fill myself up so that I get what I need and so that I can give to others what you know, from myself, what I think that would be helpful for us collectively as well, not from a savior point of view, no. um, but from a contribution to our yeah. humanity, Community. to our shared experience. Right. But it, it has to start with, with me first. There you have it. Start with y'all first. Layla, shout out to the whole Qatar clique. Uh, <laughs> That's me and my kids and my husband. <laughs> like, we out here. Um, we out here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, please stay safe. Stay strong. Stay black. You too. And, yeah. you know, let's all continue to see each other through this wild ride. I mean, I went outside this morning and the fires in LA are so mm. ra just raging that I, mm. you can smell, well, there's a haze. So there's just no sky. Like it's just oh. smoke and haze. It's like a, a pallor. It's very, um, ominous. Stay safe, everybody. Yeah. It's very yeah. ominous. It's very ominous. It makes me want to speak. With an accent. <laughs> um, it feels like a Ray Bradbury novel. It's just many things. So, mm. um, yeah, it was great talking to you. And thank you so much for giving us this time. And, you know, we're a world away. But, again, we are connected by so many things, including our sisterhood. So appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Scarpins Avenue, a podcast. <clears throat> a podcast network.